Join Greenbook at the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange Conference Series. IIEX is your global hub for connections, inspiration, and innovative solutions in market research. Visit greenbook.org events to learn more about events in Asia, the Americas, and Europe. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off general admission on all upcoming events. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Green Book Podcast. You'll notice a different voice this time. I am Karen Lynch. I'm happy to be hosting this episode as Green Book's head of content because I am welcoming our usual host, Lenny Murphy, to the show as a guest, along with his partner in crime at Gen2 Advisors, Greg Archibald. For those of you who don't know, Gen2 Advisors is a firm that gives advice, for lack of a better word, to a lot of players in the industry. And the best thing for me to do is allow these two experienced and incredibly intelligent gentlemen to introduce themselves and tell you a little more about that. So without much further ado, welcome, Greg. Could you share a little bit about yourself with our audience? Sure. And thank you, Karen. My name is Greg Archibald. I'm the managing partner for Gen2 Advisors. I've been in the research industry since 19... 1991, I think, uh, was my first gig in the industry. Most of the first half of my career, or the first, God, math, uh, the first 20 years of my career, most of that was spent on the client side, working with Marriott and AT&T and Capital One and GE and a couple of others in the mix. And about 10 years ago, we started Gen2 Advisors, which is a management consulting company for the insights industry. And that's when Lenny and I started working most closely together. We had worked together a little bit when I was on the client side. And since then, it's been a wild ride working with Greenbook, working with Lenny, working with a lot of different suppliers and clients and seeing how the world has changed over the course of the past 10 years. That's awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, you can't see, I have a huge smile on my face just being in the virtual presence with both of these fine gentlemen. Lenny, I'm going to hand it over to you before we get into the topic today, which is obviously a passion project of yours. Tell the listeners who, who may know you very well as the host of this podcast and as all things Green Book for quite a long time, tell them a little bit about your role at Gen2 and things they may not know about you. Sure. And, and it's it's nice to switch seats, Karen. So <laughs> <laughs> this is fun. For those who, who don't know me or know more about me, I'm, I'm Lenny Murphy. I've been in the research industry for 22 years now. So multiple decades, which is always kind of amazing to think about. With the first half of that, building and running research companies. And that's where I met Greg. Greg was a client and I roped him in to this other endeavor went in around 2012, decided what was asked by Greenboat to do some consulting on content, and it just morphed into this whole thing that, <laughs> that we have going on now, going from a directory to now you know, a fully-fledged marketing and, and publishing company. As a result of that type of work, was asked to do some consulting. Greenbook's not a consulting company. I wrote Greg in. We started Gen2 Advisors. What folks don't know is they might not be aware of my relationship with uh, with Greg and Gen2. I'm also the uh, the chief strategy officer for Veriglyph. 
I am on the board of directors for Savio. Those are spinoff companies that we incubated within Greenbook and Gen2. And we just moved to Kentucky, for those who don't know. So now I'm a farmer, too. We bought a small farm in Kentucky and have five kids plus a foster, two dogs, two cats, a should-be sainted wife who has put up with me for 27 years now. So kudos to Danielle. And one last piece irrelevant for this, the GRIT report originally was the Research Industry Trends Report, which I started as a competitive intelligence exercise with a company that I was the COO of called Dialtech back in 2002, because we wanted to find out what was going on with this whole uh, whole online research thing and thought the best way to do that would be to do a survey of the industry. And the best way to get people to actually take that survey would be to share the data with them. And that's actually how I met Green Book, Lukasz Poskville, managing director, reached out after the second year of doing that and said, hey, this is kind of cool. Could we help you with this? And when I joined Green Book later on down the road, that became grit. So it has evolved a lot over the last, well, really 20 years. Uh, I didn't, <laughs> yeah, Greg, math. I hadn't done that math before. <laughs> so there's been some version of grit in existence for 20 years. And it continues to evolve, and it's uh, it definitely is one of my my passion projects and one of the things that I, I get most stoked about because it's research on research, and that's fun. Anyway, there we go. I love that as the qualitative researcher, you know, with, with years of experience in qualitative, I'm listening to hear two seasoned research professionals both say they're not great at math in this episode. So thank you for that, because <laughs> qualities don't love math either, so we're good. <laughs> Anyway, thank you for that. And by the way, Lenny, I do expect to see you in a pair of overalls fairly soon on one of these podcast recordings. So for those of you who don't know, we have our videos on. We're able to see each other. We get to see some of the nodding that's going on and the smiling that's going on. But Farmer Lenny needs some overalls to complete that look. Anyway, thank you so much for sharing that. Today, we're talking about the GRIT report. And what I want to clarify for everybody is this is the Business Innovation GRIT report. It is different from the GRIT report that we talked about or that Lenny talked about with Nelson Whipple on episode five of the podcast, which happened earlier this year. So Lenny, can you clarify for our audience what the difference between these two reports actually is or the differences are so that they can start to differentiate in their head the two different waves? Yeah, well, you know, as GRIT, as it, it, it just got too damn big. <laughs> You know, it was a big, beastly, nasty, long survey because there were a lot of topics that we wanted to cover during it annually. So we made the decision a few years ago to split it into two distinct surveys, which effectively we think of as kind of seasonally. So in the fall, we collect data and publish in the first in Q1, the Insights Practice Report, which is really kind of the nuts and bolts nitty gritty, no pun intended, of research, uh, you know, technology adoption, usage, you know, those types of things, a lot of the trend components. And then what we are about to publish, and we're going to talk about here, is the Business and Innovation Report, which takes a broader view of trends in the industry. It does include the GRIP 50. It is a mechanism for us to kind of understand the financial trends, hiring, 
larger issues. We, we throw a lot of different things into this report that we think are interesting. So now we publish twice a year, two distinct reports. There is some commonality between them in terms of questions that we ask, uh, like we always ask about the business outlook. And that's been critical the past few years as things have been kind of in flux. And then to complicate matters even more, we decided last year that we still leave an awful lot on the table, which those who have read Grit may be surprised by because it is a big, lengthy report. But there's a lot of depth that we still can't cover. So we have created a series of spinoff reports, which are specializing in very specific topics. So and we've been churning those out. So we're really moving into a quarterly cadence going forward where there's the two core grit reports in effectively Q1 and Q3, roughly, while the spinoff reports, which change based upon what we think is, is relevant, interesting in, uh, in Q2 and Q4. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that. Greg, just partially because I am curious about this, but also because I want to get into the findings. But first, remembering your role as an advisor, historically, how do you personally use some of the findings from GRIT in general, things you've read over the years? Do you work with the data with some of the the clients that you advise? Do you keep it in mind just for your own professional growth? I think there could be some insight into how somebody at your level of expertise uses that data and these findings so that when they take in the content that we're about to share with them, they have some perhaps action items or things they should be thinking about moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So I use this in a lot of different ways. The most important way is the general themes that are happening within the industry. And we'll talk about some of those. Those pop up in almost every conversation that we have to some degree, but there's a lot of opportunities to look underneath with a little bit more detail because we do categorize companies as to how they fit kind of in the supplier mix, whether they're kind of a full service company or more of a strategic consultancy or analytics company. And these apply to, all of the themes apply to each of those differently. Also, when we're looking at more on the client side or the buyer side, there are those themes shift in the CPG world or in kind of the more consulting world like the McKinsey's and things like that. So the variations are very important, whether we're looking at revenues or the themes that clients are looking for, whatever that may be shifts, depending on how you're looking at the different segments and themes that are around. So let's get into some of those themes because I'm anxious to start to hear from you. What are some of the big takeaways? Now, the re- this report is not out yet, and yet we've been privy to an executive summary. So let's really dip right in and, and start off with what you are finding most interesting in the current data set. Lenny, you want to share with us what's most interesting? What really grabbed you or stood out this time? Sure. Yeah. So I so said we, we use this addition to explore a few different topics and often to put in new questions that we don't necessarily track year on year or that we think this is relevant and timely. So one of the things that those question areas that we explored this time around was around sample quality and availability. Now, the last time that we touched that was a few years ago, but that situation has changed. I mean, anyone paying attention, you know, there's been a lot of discussion here on the podcast as well but also kind of across the industry and and other venues and events on what appears to to be, I don't think it's uh, hyperbolic to say this, a a crisis 
around sample quality and availability. There is a supply crunch. You know, we see we hear about these supply chain issues across the board. Well, it's it's happening with respondents and sample as well. So we tackled that. We asked a whole whole battery of questions related to that. And one of the key things that we found, and we see this in the executive summary, and we go much more in depth in the report itself, is steps that that both suppliers and buyers are taking to address sample quality and availability. And the biggest one on both was looking for alternative sample sources, which, you know, my position is the sample is the bedrock of the entire industry. So, you know, we, we kind of take it for granted, but it is foundational. If we can't get people to ask questions, then we don't have a business because that that's fundamentally what we are in the business of doing. And the panel industry is a, a, a very significant from revenue perspective, right? It touches almost every company, buyer and supplier, almost every project, large players like Dynata that manage huge aspects of the supply chain, Scent, Lucid. I mean, there's some big, big companies, multi-billion dollar valuation you know, companies that are major players in this. And this was a warning shot across the bow to the entire industry that the traditional ways that we have gone about engaging consumers is not fitting the needs for many of the buyers on both the supplier and the client side. And they're looking for new ways to do this. So I think that, that's one big one that's fresh, it's new and significant. So Greg, what do you think? I think this even takes one step back. So one of the, the big problems is knowing that you've got a per, the right person that is filling out a survey. The second piece of that is getting them to actually fill out a survey, getting them to engage with it. And we do some things in this industry that I think cause that person some pain. I don't think that we are very good at providing fair compensation. There are absolutely exceptions to that rule. But generally speaking, I've got a bunch of apps on my phone that are survey apps, and it can take me five minutes and I earn five cents. And it's, you know, that idea of compensation for your time. And sometimes we're really mean. We give you a grid question on a cell phone. <laughs> Those are just, that's just not being nice, you know? <laughs> I don't think we really take advantage of all the data that we have available in terms of passive data and what we know about people already. I had one app on my phone where if they had asked me how much money I made per year again, I was just, in fact, I did get rid of it because I was answering the same five or six questions at the beginning and wasn't getting paid for those. So it's just kind of one of the things that we need to look at is how we treat the people that are answering surveys with respect. And, you know, we are definitely getting there. There are companies that are making efforts that way, and I applaud those efforts, but it's going pretty slowly, and these sample problems have been getting worse over time. I think the first the first effort that I had in trying to make sample better was a meeting with a bunch of other client-side companies, brand-side companies, in 1993, still haven't gotten there. 
So, yeah, and if I can add to that, and it's actually a segue into one of the other topics around automation that we cover, is what, what we did, and I had the CEO of uh, one of the larger companies explain this to me, and I had not ever heard it explained exactly this way. We leveraged automation the same way that ad tech leveraged automation. And it's about, it's the lowest common denominator is to get somebody to engage in the fastest and cheapest way. That's how advertising works online. And we adopted that same model within the research space. It makes perfect sense from a financial standpoint. It makes perfect sense. No, I'm not casting aspersions to anybody in, in doing that. And just like the advertising industry, now we're paying the price of recognizing that there was a quality issue involved in there, right? That advertising automation opened up to click fraud, et cetera, et cetera. That is an issue for our industry as well. I it is pretty common knowledge now that in many, many cases, up to 30% of responses are being thrown out because they're just BS. And to Greg's point, we have not adapted as an industry in a variety of ways to changes in consumer behavior. I've said for years, we needed to start acting like marketers. And we do not do that well in any way, shape or form when it comes to engagement. So we have these two things of this force of automation, this drive towards we can be automated, it will be automated. And that's kind of across the board from a process standpoint. But there's trade-offs in doing that. And, and we're seeing the, the, the biggest issue where we're seeing now from a quality trade-off is within sample. And that's demonstrated in this report. So let me just, so many points I want to go back to real quick. But what you're both talking about it as you're, you're explaining some of the ways we can improve just the design, whether it's being designed for mobile or not, for instance, it sounds like we in our industry can learn a lot from all the usability researchers that are now in our space. This is what they do. We need to learn from them and make sure that we are adhering to practices of usability research ourselves outside of just the usability space and, and for people with the apps and providers. So to me, that seems like, yeah, we need to be paying attention to their community as they merge closer and closer into ours. The other thing, Greg, you were talking about, which I was really fascinated with, again, with my qualitative lens, for those of you who don't know, you know, I, I joined Greenbook after 30 years as, as a qualitative researcher, a moderator, a facilitator. And you're talking about empathy for the survey participants. We've been talking about empathy in the qualitative space for, you know, a, the better part of a decade at least, because that's how we develop rapport and that's how design thinkers do it. But you're talking about quantitative work needing to start with empathy as well. And I think that's just a little bit of a paradigm shift that I wanted to call out. So thank you for pointing that out. Lenny, I have one more question for you specifically before we move on to another category. You said that people were looking for alternative sources of sample. What are some of those alternatives? Do you know, am I putting you on the spot by saying, where are they looking outside of their usual sources? Are they finding other vendors, new vendors, or are they really stepping even outside of that space? So we didn't ask that specific question within GRIT, but I can tell you now putting on my Gen 2 hat, right? And Greg can jump in here as well. I mean, we're, we, we are observing companies that have been emerging for a while, leveraging social media for recruitment. You know, there's quite a few companies that have been out there doing that and more coming up. I actually will name names uh, on this, that there is a, for B2B, it's a company called Newton X. Yeah, they use basically 
a search on steroids algorithm to identify B2B folks, and then they recruit them. So they're not building a panel, but they've automated this process so efficiently that they it's very much functions from a cost perspective as a panel would for B2B. So I think there's lots of different things that are happening in that respect. There's Everybody knows I'm involved with Veriglyph, which is this kind of rethinking personal data ownership and and you know those kind of data marketplace models. And there's quite a few in the industry that are building those approaches. So there's folks that are paying data dividends to consumers every single month just for access. They're in a panel. They're sharing more than just answering questions or sharing some behavioral data. And it's significant. It's 100 bucks a month that folks are getting. There's a company, and Greg, Greg kind of hinted at this, that uh, we just uncovered out of the UK, that they have established a flat $15 an hour rate for their panelists. That's what they're paid. It looks more like a gig network than a traditional panel. So there are lots of different angles and approaches and innovation happening where folks are stepping up and stepping in to this market. What I, I will give one more shout out, a company called Dscout. They've been around forever. They were a gig platform, right? They, they tried their hands at mystery shopping and they, they did well. They just got, I don't know, a bajillion dollars, right? <laughs> you know, but they, they got a big, big round of funding and they're targeting this industry as well as others. You know, so they're not, they're not just limiting themselves to, you know, surveys and focus groups. They're doing lots of different things, but they darn sure are doing surveys and focus groups too. And their model is just very different. So, so as much as this may be, you know, if I'm the CEO of one of the big panel companies, I'm looking at this and going, uh-oh, my next thought would be, wow, this is really an opportunity to innovate and to, to change the paradigm and to build real sustainable value by putting the panelists first, putting the consumer first. And that's going to require some rethinking of the economics of research. But I think that we have enough benefit of automation in other ways that are reducing other costs that we can increase our sample costs and still have the overall cost of project about the same as where we are now. So we just shift the dollars and where they're spent because we're gaining efficiencies in other ways as well. And I'll just add on to that just a little bit because I ran across something recently that just uh, blew me away. In the 1980s, I got a letter from Nielsen in the mail asking me to track my television usage. And in that letter was a crisp $2 bill. And so I did it because I thought that was kind of cool, right? I got a survey in the mail from a national company probably six weeks ago that had a crisp $2 bill. I got engaged. And this is as old school as you get. <laughs> so absolutely. <laughs> you know, so there are new ways to approach it and should be approached, but there's also some old ways. What's the modern day equivalent of a $2 bill? That's what, that's what we really need people to innovate <laughs> around, right? We need people to put some creative thinking around it was a $2 bill. What's it going to be today? So I love that example. Thank you. All right. So we want to be mindful of time. Again, channeling my inner Lenny. That's something I hear him say all the time. So here I am smiling at you, Lenny, saying, let's be mindful of time. What else is so poignant in this 
particular report that we want to focus on that you feel is important for our listeners to hear kind of hot off the press in this sneak peek? So one of the things that we ask about are who are the most innovative suppliers and who are the most innovative brands? And in some cases, it's kind of a popularity contest, but in some cases, a lot of the real innovation is pushing through as well. So when I'm looking at the suppliers that are coming out of their skim, dig, behaviorally, hot specs, a lot of these have a emotional or non-conscious or kind of a behavioral component to them. And what it's showing me is the things that we've been talking about for five or six or seven years are starting to get mainstream, breaking through the clutter and providing clients with something different and more valuable than what may be provided in some other ways. Now, even with some of the other companies that are listed there, though that's not truly what they're known for, you know, uh, Ipsos and Kantar, they do offer that as well. So I'm wondering, you know, kind of where that is coming from. But there are a couple of others that are really looking at the efficiencies and what we do on a day-to-day basis, concept testing and ad testing and tracking stuff. So like uh, Qualtrics and Zappi and Donata that are doing some things more along these lines. So I think we're seeing a couple of themes here in doing something more or doing it really a lot more efficiently. That's what I'm seeing kind of from that innovative leaderboard for the suppliers. Yeah, I, I would agree. And that's a great point, Greg. Yeah, so that that list of the top 10 hasn't changed substantively. The ranking changes, the positioning changes, right? But those companies are clearly kind of the leaders. But to have so many that are more behaviorally focused in those positions, I think is incredibly telling. And I think that's, I'll be very interested when we do the next round of grit that's focused on methodology adoption and usage, if we see the same uptake on those types of methods, because I believe that this is one kind of the long tail transformation stories coming out of 2020, right? The you know traditional measures, our benchmarks, et cetera, et cetera, just, we, we kind of had to throw them out the window and we had in many ways had to start from scratch while understanding that consumer behavior had changed. Now, a lot of motivations changed. A lot of, of drivers of decision-making had changed and are still continuing to do that. So those companies are a great indicator of that need to try and understand a continual process of evolving consumer decision-making, evolving marketplaces, and changing priorities. Um, when I'll mention one other thing and then I'll hush in the interest of time, the leaderboard of the buyers changed as well. And many more technology companies, it was always kind of a, it was always P&G and Unilever going back and forth between one and two, right? P&G, Unilever, Coke, Pepsi. I mean, those were always the, the, the CPG companies were the ones driving that. And this year we've got Alphabet as number one, P&G down to number two, Amazon, uh, number three, Meta, you know, it was in there's five. Also, and this is interesting, McKinsey and Accenture. And Gartner. And Gartner. And what was most interesting about that is 
that and now this may be a, a, an artifact of how we changed how we asked the question and I, and I should own that we, we changed how we asked the question before so those companies would appear on the supplier list in previous years and we added a little more clarity in the question and this year they were firmly identified as buyers you know, the industry you know, when when we gave them the opportunity the respondents the opportunity to to clarify their own thinking, boom, that's where they were. They are buyers and they are, you know, significant in their, their positioning in that leaderboard. So that's really interesting as well. Change dynamics in the evolution of the industry from the, the key players. Lenny, you're quick to say, yes, we changed the question. And, and of course, I'll give you that. But I also just saw very recently, I mean, recently as within the last week or so, an um, ESMAR report that also lists those brands as, you know, top insights providers. I know that, you know, I was, I was looking at it here and I was, I was sharing it with my husband who used to be in the industry as well. The competition for the suppliers in the industry space right now, even full service suppliers, is really starting to be those very, very large top consultancy firms. So it is a changing marketplace for sure. And what we're seeing with that, I believe, is that a lot of companies are looking to buy an answer, looking to buy a roadmap of what to do next. And those companies are in a position, because they have a lot of different practice areas, to help move that further than most traditionally defined marketing research companies are, because they can look at manufacturing processes and HR processes and tax accounting and as well as the market. So they are selling insights without a doubt. That is what their fundamental business proposition is. But at the same time, there's they're buying a lot of more market attitudes, behavior, type data as well. So they're they're doing both. They're buying a lot of research. They're 100% selling the outcome of that consulting. And Karen, I want to make sure, I think it's a good segue here. Sorry, I can't resist now. No. No, <laughs> but, uh, so I want to make sure that we cover the, the supplier revenue trend because it is, so we, we've talked about this changing marketplace and new competition, and there is, absolutely. But Every indication that we have, and, and th this is a question we ask every wave. So we ask it twice a year around the revenue trend. We ask it for buyers as well. But every indication is that the industry is healthy and booming. Now, this data was collected in early summer, late spring, early summer of 2022. Now, we're having this conversation in the end of July, beginning of August. We all know that you know the macroeconomic situation appears to be in flux. And, you know, I think it became official yesterday that the U.S. is in a recession. So we'll see how this goes. But as of this is something we've seen since Q3 of 2020, is that every category, every segment in the industry is doing well overall, some better than the others. And the companies doing best are the technology providers. So they're reporting the most significant increases in revenue overall, but make no mistake, everybody else is doing pretty darn well too. So I think that's important that in this, this rapidly changing landscape, you know, we're still doing pretty all right overall. And those categories, just uh, to clarify, are data analytics, field service, full service, 
strategic consultancies and then tech providers. And the percent that say their their revenues have increased decently or better, they range kind of from 70 to 80% of the, the clients in that mix. But to Lenny's point, you know, we have seen some contraction over the course of the past few months. And we are hearing anecdotally that clients are starting to take a look at how they're spending money moving forward. You know, economically, I'm not an economist, but it doesn't look like this is going to be a particularly bad recession from the rumors that I hear. But we are hearing those first rumblings of clients cutting back. And so I would suspect that the revenue trend won't be quite as good in the next go-round. Yeah, I agree. What'll be interesting, though, is how this automation component plays out, because Greg well knows when we first met, uh, and he was my client during the 2008 recession, the volume of business, the volume of projects didn't change. They simply didn't earn as much money as they did beforehand, right? We did as many projects as we did the year before, but for half the revenue. Now, for a full-service research company, that's a death knell. It was for Rockhopper, for for my company. But for a a technology company that is based on automation, that could be a godsend. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. My gut is that the technology companies, just as we saw in 2020, they'll be positioned pretty darn well to, to weather any contraction, regardless of how severe or long it is. But that's just my gut. What's cool about this conversation, and I do wish we had more time, but in the data, which which I poured through for a presentation I was giving, was also some information about employment trends and how sometimes the largest companies who are doing the best also have the most volatility when it comes to people resigning or people being let go. Like There's a lot of volatility in some of the larger companies. Some of the smaller companies are a little more stable. So for, for job hunters out there, there's a lot of folks in our industry that hear recession and suddenly think, well, what does that mean for me? They start to get worried about their jobs. Is there anything else in some of that data that you saw, Lenny, that could kind of be a beacon for, for folks who might be worried about the job market in this industry? Yeah, I mean, it, the job market is weird and it has been for a little while, right? We have the great resignation and, you know, again, all these kind of cultural macro changes in the job market. Traditional wisdom would be that when there is some type of contraction that people stay put and maybe settle a little bit more, I'm not going to bet that that's what we see this time around. So I don't know. I don't have clarity on how that's going to go. What we do see is that folks that have good experience and, and good skills, they're in demand and they're being up to this point, we're being hired. I don't see a reason to think that will change unless we start seeing layoffs, but there's this other weird dynamic that's, just it's hard to put a finger on how it's going to play. Uh, Greg, you want final thoughts on that? Because I, I don't have clarity on how this is playing out. I'm going to be the, the shining light on this one. Data and analytics, generically speaking, are driving a big piece of how businesses are spending their time and money. If you are in the marketing research field, data and analytics, project management, whatever, You've got a job for a long time to come. Nursing is one that you've, for the foreseeable future, you've got a good job. You're going to be employed the minute you leave one and step into the other. The same way here. I've probably talked to 10 CEOs or 
10 C-suite people in the past three weeks, and every one of them has said, oh, and if you run across somebody, let me know. Yeah, this field, I, I think you're golden for yeah, the next 10, 15, 20, 30 years. So the next time I want to let an elephant into the room, Greg, I just want you there to make sure you can like corral them right back out for me. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. So, all right. So, so final thoughts, anything, anything else that they can look forward to? We can't get into any more findings, but that they can look forward to when they see this report, Lenny, anything you're excited for that we didn't see covered here? Well, I mean, it's, you know, there's just a ton of, of stuff in, in grit. And I have to give a shout out to Nelson Whipple. I mean, Nelson is just amazing, and he does such fantastic writing and analysis. I will let everybody know that where this has always been a, a, it was a print report, then it was a PDF-focused report. We are taking a web-first approach this year. So for everybody who says, oh, my God, it's so big, well, yes, but it's going to be in digestible bite-sized nuggets. We're building the web pages so that it's easy to navigate into subsections and we're doing lots of call outs and it's gonna be a lot easier for you to find exactly what you're looking for instead of flipping through the pdf if you want the pdf i'm still a pdf guy right i don't i'm not scared of size like yeah give me 200 pages that's fine that will be available as well but we've tried to to adapt the form factor to make it a lot more user-friendly taking some tips from the ux community karen <laughs> so I am excited about that. It's it's, it's going to be interesting as we go through that whole process and hopefully open it up to a, a wider audience who absorb content differently than an old geezer like I do. So, <laughs> And will there be Easter eggs? Oh, there are always Easter <laughs> eggs. So Nelson and I have a lot of fun in writing this because uh, we are both music and movie buffs and he, he far more so than me. So he likes to plant little Easter eggs for me to find let alone our reading audience. So, <laughs> so yes, I think the theme this year was the Godfather. I think that there's a, there's a fair amount of Godfather references in, uh, <laughs> in this one. So be on the lookout. That's great. That's great. Greg, any last words of wisdom for our listeners? You know, I, I think the big takeaway is since the, the late 90s, we've seen a lot of change in this industry. And it's primarily been driven by technology, whether that's the internet or mobile or new capabilities and AI and so forth. We are getting better and better at applying that and understanding it and making it useful to companies. And I think what I get excited about more than anything else is the consistent change that we see. And we are continuing to see it, even if it's coming from sample or coming from the types of companies that are considered brands and how they're interacting or the frameworks like behavioral economics. There's always something new and important moving forward. And there's just a lot of highlights in the current grit report. That's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. Lenny, how do they get this report? When will they know it's coming out? What's the best way for people to get in the know as soon as it's, as soon as it's out there? Uh, well, if you, participated, then you'll get it for anybody else. You'll get a direct email link. So hint, hint, hint for uh, those who want to get it first. Otherwise, you know, we're Green Book. We're a marketing platform. You will get an email probably with my name on it as soon as it is ready saying, Grid is there. And it'll be on social media and it'll be across the board. So 
I'm not worried about people not knowing that it's available. Everybody will know that it's available. You also, of course, you can go to greenbook.org and you can sign up for alerts and mailing lists. And the home of grid is greenbook.org forward slash grid. So that's the home of all the historical documents and of this one going forward. But yeah, I'm not worried about you not knowing, especially, you know, here's a little, here's a dirty little secret. One of the reasons we do the grit 50 is because those companies that make that ranking from a brand perspective, they want everybody to know. So they send it to all their lists too. So when, uh, when this edition of grid is released, it is omnipresent. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, Lenny, so much for sitting in the guest seat for a change. Thank you, Greg, for joining us and being in the hot seat. I appreciate both of you so very much. Thanks to James, our podcast audio editor. I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you to the entire Green Book team for doing what you do to help us get this information out there. And thank you most of all to our listeners. It is a pleasure sharing this time with you. And certainly let us know if there are more topics that you want to hear about in the future podcast at greenbook.org. Thank you so much, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your day. Join Greenbook for the 2024 Insight Innovation Exchange. This global conference series, also known as IIEX, is where connections are made, inspiration is found, and innovative solutions are discovered. With more than 90% of attendees using IIEX Insights to shape strategic business decisions, the return on investment is undeniable. Whether you're in Asia-Pacific, North America, Europe, or Latin America, IIEX is your gateway to the latest market research best practices, tech innovation, and strategies for transforming insights into action. Nurture your career and business with insights from across the globe. And here's a bonus. Use the special code PODCAST to save 20% on general admission for all IIEX events. Visit greenbook.org events today to learn more and register. See you there.